All right, Mark chapter 8. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 8, we'll call your attention now to verse 27. We'll read from verse 27 down to verse 33. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would set our minds on the things of God, not the things of man. You have given us right here the very heart of Christianity. So Lord, I pray you would use it today to strengthen brothers and sisters in the Lord and to bring to faith those who are not. We ask you to help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. At 6,684 feet, Mount Mitchell is the highest peak in the state of North Carolina. Not only that, it is the highest peak in every state that is east of the Mississippi River. If you go there, I would suggest you follow the road and drive up the mountain. But if you decide to take the trail, it's a terrible trail. There are roots and rocks, and it's arduous. If you decide to take the trail, the miles and the time and the hours it'll take you to get up there will wear you down to the degree that when you finally break out of the canopy of trees to the openness of that peak, all you want to do is sit down and look. Now, we've been climbing up the mountain of the Gospel of Mark for 10 months. And it's an arduous trail. We've been going up bit by bit. If you're a guest, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since January. Now we have broken through the canopy of trees that we've been reading, and Mark has brought us to the very peak of this gospel. After this passage, after this passage, we'll start back down. We'll go back down into the valley of the shadow of death. There we'll find the cross. But today, today what I want us to do is just rest a minute and look around 
at this peak. And, and here, all that the writer, Mark, let's hear all that he has to tell us about Jesus. That's what he's been doing all along. If you're a guest today, you picked a good day to come to church. I'm going to give you a rundown. You could have skipped 10 months of sermon. I'm going to give you a rundown. Here's what Mark has been doing. He opens up the gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and he says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is going to be about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 11, God the Father speaks from heaven and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The devils start telling the truth. In chapter 1, verse 24, demons say, You are the Holy One of God. In chapter 3, they say, You are the Son of God. Chapter 5, a bunch of them say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. We'll get to the end of the book of Mark in chapter 15 when Jesus Christ dies on the cross. A Roman soldier standing there will say, surely this was the Son of God. That's what Mark is doing. He's telling us Jesus is the Son of God. We've been climbing that hill. But now Mark takes us one step further. Right to the very top. And the way he does it is he tells us the questions that Jesus asked. There are two questions here, and one of them is so profound that it becomes the very heart and the heartbeat of Christianity. In fact, I want to use it as my theme. Who do you say Jesus is? And depending on how you answer that question, it will define the very course of your life from this day forward. Who do you say Jesus is? I'll tell you what let's do. Let's make it a Bible study, and then I'll come back and make some points. Join me there in verse 27. Let's walk through the story, and we'll come back and make some application. Verse 27 tells us that Jesus walked with his disciples. They've come from Bethsaida in verse 22. That's the town they're walking from. They're going to walk 25 miles, almost a marathon. If you're a marathon runner, that's 26. Brother Kyler, who preached last week, he just told me he ran, he's already run 40 half marathons this year. What is wrong with Kyler? <laughs> so 25 miles, Jesus is walking with his disciples. There's 25 miles. They've got a lot to talk about. They're going to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was named by Philip. He includes Caesar's name just to make sure you, you don't make the boss mad. So Caesar is one name, and then Philippi, he's got his name in it, Caesarea Philippi. The town that was a pagan town, the Romans had established it initially and named it Pan after one of their gods. We would have human sacrifices and all kinds of things you wouldn't talk about. You're walking to this terrible place, and Jesus, along the way in verse 28, asked the disciples, what are the people saying? Crowds have been following. He's been healing people, casting out demons. So he asked them in verse 28, verse 27, what do the anthropoi, what do the, the crowds, what are they saying about me? And they come up with several good answers. If you have Matthew, Matthew is a fuller account, Matthew 16. You can find it in Luke as well. But here in verse 28, they tell him that, well, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. That's what Herod thought. John the Baptist came back from the dead. So some people are, are perpetuating that rumor. 
Some think you're Elijah. Micah said that Elijah is going to come back, and so some think you are the fulfillment of Elijah. And then some people, some people think you're a prophet, one of the prophets. Matthew tells us that they said also that they think you might be Jeremiah. So it's a very positive thing. It's a good thing. They, they're saying all of these good things about you. And then Jesus stops them there and asks a very personal, pointed question, one that we all have to answer. Verse 29, and he said to them, but who do you? All three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John doesn't have this story, but these three, they have it, and it's the emphatic you. Who do you? If you're in middle school, this is for you. Who do you? Who do you say that I am? Then the great confession you have there, Peter, who is the spokesperson for all of the disciples, he speaks up as he oftentimes does. He is the leader. And Peter answered in verse 29, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That's what that word means. You are the anointed one. The Jews were looking for one to come that would be the leader and savior. You're it. In fact, in fact, he says it in Matthew, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. It's a full statement. It is the it is the great confession right here, truncated a little bit by Mark. Jesus says to them, <clears throat> don't tell anybody that, verse 30. Once he said, you're the Christ, you've identified me, but you don't have the whole story yet. Verse 30, he tells them, don't tell people this. And then verse 31, Jesus opens up now for the very first time. They've not heard this story. You know, we, we look back and we know what happened to Jesus. They had no idea. The Gospel of Mark, we've been climbing up this mountain, and each step we get this bigger view of Jesus. He's healing, he's preaching, he's doing miracles, he's casting out demons. The crowds are with us. He is the Messiah. Verse 31, he changes everything they know. Notice what he says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is a theological statement, that's tied to Daniel chapter 8. The Son of Man must, that is a plan, he must, what must happen to the Son of Man? The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. Well, you can imagine, the disciples are dumbfounded. They've not heard anything like this. This is brand new. Now, Jesus will teach this three more times, but this is the first time they've heard this. They've never conceived that a Messiah would go through such turmoil. And so Peter, who's the leader, the text says in verse 32, Jesus has said this plainly. He's not teaching a parable. He told it straight. Verse 32, Peter, Peter took him aside. Oh, you don't want to embarrass the boss. Here's, here's, he's the, Jesus is the rabbi, so let's take him aside to rebuke him in a way that everybody doesn't see it. But, but he needs to be rebuked because if you know anything about theology, Jesus, you understand that the Christ is going to rule. And so the text says that Peter, can you imagine the audacity? Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. It's the same word used to describe what Jesus did with the demons, rebuked. 
terrible thing. Pulls him aside and rebukes him. Verse 33, but turning to the disciples, Jesus is, is standing there taking it from Peter. He sees the disciples are witnessing it. He looks over at those guys and he speaks in such a way that they hear. Seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. And this is what he said to Peter. Peter, you're acting like the devil. You are Satan. I've always wondered, I mean, we just came off the highest point of Peter's apostolic life. When he's asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Over in Matthew, Matthew tells us that Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't give you this. God the Father gave this to you. And now, just a little bit later, get behind me, Satan. Why Satan? Why did he call him Satan? Why couldn't he just say, Peter, you're wrong? Satan. Do you remember Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness in the beginning of Mark? Part of the temptation was for Jesus to take glory without going to the cross. Verse 31, Jesus has just explained he's got to go through the cross to be glorified. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says to him, you are in league with the devil if you stand in front of the cross. Get your mind off earthly things, Peter. You get your mind. Get your mind on the things of God. Now, with that in mind, let's go back and let's make some application. What are the things that we can take away from this story? Let me give you three or four. Here's the first one. Number one, being positive about Jesus isn't enough. It's not enough. It's not enough to think positive things about Jesus, to have a nice thing to say about Jesus. They asked in verse 27 and 28, Peter asked them, what are the regular people saying? What are the population? What is, what is the regular, normal person that has not been close? What do they say about me? And everything they offered up, including how it's described in Matthew when, when Jeremiah is included, all of them are positive. Jeremiah was positive, Elijah, John the Baptist, all, one of the prophets. All of those are positive statements. In the, day, in, in the day and time we live in, it's not enough to be positive about Jesus. Most pe other religions are positive about Jesus. Islam is in the news right now with all that's happening in Israel and Gaza Strip with Hamas and all of the riots that are breaking out. We see them happen in New York and London. Islam would say of Jesus, he's a prophet. Hindus would say Jesus is a holy man. A Buddhist would say Jesus is an enlightened guru. Even, even someone that is irreligious would be willing to say Jesus is a really good moral teacher. The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, they've got his name right in the name of their church. What do they think about Jesus? They would see him as, as coming from a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, a, a man that would become a god that gets twisted beyond that. Or, or when they walk up your driveway, Jehovah's Witness, they're going to say positive things about Jesus. But what they believe is that he was a created being, was the archangel Michael, before the physical world was created, and then it gets twisted also. All of those are positive things, but they're absolutely wrong. Amen. 
See, being positive about Jesus, it's not enough. Be clear. When we talk about the gospel, we want to be clear about who Jesus is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Him as the second person of the Trinity. That God is holy and we are sinners and Jesus is the mediator, the God-man, the one that God has given us to live perfectly, to die on the cross in the place of sinners, the one who was raised from the dead victoriously, and the promise is any one of you that believe in that Jesus will be saved. What do we believe about Jesus? That he is from the very beginning, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he is, as the Nicene Creed would say, God of very God. That Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified in the place of sinners, was dead and buried. And in three days, God raised him from the dead. That Jesus now has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will come again for his church. A clear picture of who Jesus is. Being positive, though, about Jesus, not enough. Let's use the word clear then. Let's make a second point. Number two, being clear on Jesus is a must. Got to be clear. In a world where things are so mixed up, we must be clear. Verse 29 and 30, join me there. Verse 29 and 30, he asked them, who do you? See that word you? It's emphatic. In all three Gospels, it's emphatic. Who do you personally? It's, It's directly. You can't. You can't borrow from your parents. Man, if you're a student, now's the time. Who do you? You're 14 years old. Who do you say? Peter Peter speaks up. He is the spokesman for the group. And Peter makes the great confession right here. It's truncated here, but in Matthew 16, it is you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. It's a beautiful confession. It's true. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 16, God gave this to you. Here's where Mark has been taking us. Not only the Son of God, but He is the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, the the Savior of God. A couple of things about this. One is we need to be very clear when we talk about Jesus, how we understand and think through what did He do? Who he is and what did he do? We also need to see that it's, it's like what Jesus says about Peter in Matthew 16, that, that this is not from flesh and blood. This is not something you made up, Peter. This was given to you by God. We're clear that, that this is something spiritual, that if conversion happens, it's not just you deciding you're going to change. There's something that goes on from taking you from being dead to being alive. The Holy Spirit, what do we pray for when we pray for our lost friends? We pray that God would move on them in such a way their eyes would be open to see the goodness of God in Jesus. You have this picture here of of being clear and God-given, but there's something else here. I find it fascinating when Jesus does this in verse 30. So Peter has made the great confession, you are the Christ. Matthew tells us you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's start telling everybody this. No, verse 30. Verse 30, Jesus tells them, he strictly charged them, don't tell anybody about this. 
Why? Because Peter has made the great confession that Jesus is the Messiah, but Peter's understanding, as we'll see in a few moments, Peter's understanding of Messiah is completely off track. It's not been developed. Something that must happen is our understanding of God must continue to grow. Our understanding of Christ must continue to be developed. The disciples, in verse 30, did not yet have the whole story. So, for the very first time, verse 31, they're getting ready to get the whole story. Which gives me a third point. Let me see if I can make it. Number three. We need the whole gospel. The whole gospel. We don't need a truncated gospel. We have a clear picture of what is it that our condition is before Christ. What is it that God has done? What does the gospel mean? Why did Christ come? Who is he? And in verse 31, Jesus explains the whole gospel for the very first time in the book of Mark. In fact, if you wanted to do an outline, you could just use the phrases in verse 31 that Jesus gives us. I'll give them to you. Here's the first one. Son of man. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the son of man. Pause there. The son of man is a theological statement. It is a phrase that Jesus uses about himself. It is his favorite phrase when he talks about himself. He calls himself the son of man 81 times in the Gospels. 81 times. He's the only one to call himself the Son of Man. He does that because of what Daniel has done in Daniel chapter 8 when he pictures a man who has glory, who will suffer, and Daniel calls that one the Son of Man. Is the Son of Man, another word you might want to use as an outline, is the word must. The Son of Man must. That word must tells us that this is God's eternal plan from the foundation of the world. That the gospel of Jesus is not something God came up with to save people when he saw how lost they were. Don't think that God looked down the road and saw, you know what, people are going to go off the rails. So I need to come up with a plan that's going to save them. The foundation of the world was laid and the gospel was on the heart of God from the very beginning. Peter preaches this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed at the hands of evil men. You see, the cross that Jesus will go to is not an accident. That Jesus is not a martyr. Jesus goes to the cross as Savior. This is part of God's divine plan, and this is what Jesus is teaching them. You need to understand, I am the Son of Man, and this must happen. What must happen? I want to put the phrase, suffer many things. He tells the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things. This does not resonate with what it means to be a Messiah. You can probably even in your mind, see Peter shaking his head. This is not right. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. What are the things that he must suffer? You know the story. What did he suffer? Paul says that he emptied himself of divine glory. 
We know the narrative tells us that, that Jesus was arrested. That Jesus is put on a mock trial. He's stood before thrones that he had given. That Jesus was humiliated. You ever been humiliated? Jesus humiliated for you. Think of the beatings that Jesus underwent. Think of the being spat upon a Roman soldier. Think of the abuse. The Son of Man must suffer many things. What are the many things to be abused? The, the mockings. Think of the abandonment. Jesus abandoned. You ever felt abandoned? Think of the embarrassment of Judas, one of your very own, turning you over. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the Father to take the cup from him because death was in the cup, sin was in the cup. Think of the, 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 the terrible agony of crucifixion. How does Isaiah 53 set it up for us, the, the suffering servant? Think of Jesus Suffering, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Why? Because we have many things. And Jesus will suffer for all of them as our substitute. And not only that, Jesus says in verse 31 that the, 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 the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. I would write that word down, rejected. You offer up who you are. It's not enough. Rejected. Rejected by what is the Sanhedrin. The, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes would make up the government. The law of the land would reject Jesus. You should not be surprised if you hold on to an orthodox biblical Christianity that you will be rejected. We live in a world that is quickly devolving and, and has turned completely away from everything that is true and right and beautiful. So, so don't be surprised when a speaker of the house is elected and he happens to be a Christian like us. And he's being skewered. Why? Because we believe what we believe. Don't, don't be surprised at that. But because the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Why? Because we're rejected. What else? The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and then be killed. The wages of sin is death. Why death? You read the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Oftentimes the, the death of someone that has sinned is immediate. It's a reminder of what we actually deserve. Why must the Son of Man be killed because the wages of sin is death. Here is the one who has never sinned, who will stand in the place of sinners, stand in your place. It's a good way for you to remember the gospel. Jesus died in my place. Here is the gospel. This is, this is why Jesus came. But that's not the last must. The must are like this. The Son of Man must he must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. At the end of verse 31, the Son of Man must, after three days, rise again. Here is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Here is why we go to church on a Sunday. Because Jesus died on a cross on a Friday, 
that Saturday, which is the Sabbath, he kept completely for the very last time. God raised him from the dead on a Sunday. That's why we sing with celebration. That's why our, our worship singing is not somber. It's because of the resurrection. That the Son of Man must be raised from the dead, which means that the sacrifice was accepted, that victory has been given, that forgiveness can be yours. This is why we have hope. This is why you can walk through terrible tragedy. People wonder, how did you make it through? Because of this. Because the Son of Man suffered many things. Was killed and was raised from the dead. This, this is a promise of a coming kingdom. This is why we don't panic when we look at the world. It looks like it's on fire. Why? Because we are citizens of another kingdom. Now this makes no sense to Peter. You have the advantage. You've read it. You know the story. Peter doesn't know the story. It makes no sense to Peter. So Peter decides to correct Jesus. Can you imagine? Some of us try to do that with our own lives. Correct. So I'm going to give you the fourth point. Number four, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Sometimes I'll say it, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and today I am his favorite. We get disciplined so much. Verses 32 and 33, Jesus spoke plainly. He's not speaking in a parable anymore. It's very clear. He, he just laid it out in straight doctrine for Peter and the disciples. He, there's not a metaphor, not a simile. There's no parable. He just spoke plainly. Now, Peter uh, assumes some authority in verse 32, and he pulls Jesus aside because he doesn't want to embarrass the rabbi. And so come over here. Let me, I'm going to offer this to you privately just so you don't look silly. Because evidently you don't have a clue of what a Messiah is supposed to be. So Peter starts to rebuke Jesus. Verse 33 tells us that the other disciples are watching this. They evidently were close enough. They were not out of earshot. Although Peter acted like he was pulling. They could see it. Verse 33. Jesus sees that they see. And Jesus stops him. After having such a great thing happen, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Peter, flesh and blood didn't give you this. This came from God. And now I've explained to you what's going to happen, what salvation, how it will come about. And Peter says, there's no way. Verse 33, Jesus says to Peter, you get behind. You get behind me, Satan. What you're saying is satanic. What you're saying is exactly what Satan said to try to keep me from going to the cross. Told me I could get glory without having to go through all of that. You sound like the devil, Peter. You get your mind, get your mind off the things of the earth, how things are, are done here. And get your mind with things of God. What are the things of God? We've got to go back down this mountain. Down this mountain is the cross. That is the plan of God. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed. But Peter, Peter, the Father will raise me again. Get your mind on things of God. In fact, in the very next verse, 
In the Bible, the very next verse, Jesus will start talking more and more about the cross. Jesus clearly loves Peter. And Jesus completely corrected him. Peter, get your mind. Things of God. Peter will become the greatest preacher of the cross that the New Testament would see. What are the things of God? Things of God are the gospel of Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, died in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead. That this church is founded on the gospel of Jesus. What are the things of God? That is you growing in Christ, knowing that all that God has taken you through by his providential good hand, he's walking you through that, sustaining you, teaching you things, growing you in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, part of the things of God for you, growing in Christ. Part of the things of God, our church reaching the community. By God's grace and his goodness, he's given us the resources and the place and the opportunity to reach people for Christ. Why? Because we have an eternal hope in the living Jesus Christ. And today I'd like for you to put your faith in this Jesus. Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? Your answer determines everything. With your heads bowed this morning, with your eyes closed just for a moment before we sing, I'd like to offer up a prayer, and as I do, I'd like to give any of you a chance to come and pray this morning. When we sing, we'll call this an invitation. Our pastors are down front. If you'd like to come and talk to a pastor, you can just walk down one of the aisles, talk to one of our pastors, take him by the hand and say, I need to know more about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Possibly that seems um, odd to you. Maybe you're new to church. When church is over, once we get done, we'll all be out in the lobby. That's a good time to find one of our pastors and say, I'd like, to, I'd like to talk more about what that preacher was saying this morning. God has spoken to your heart this morning. Now's the time to respond. Father, we thank you for your word that is good, for your spirit that moves. We pray that you'd help us and find us faithful. We pray that Christ is honored in our lives individually and in the life of our church. And we proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, living perfectly and dying in our place, being raised victoriously and, and interceding for us now. We thank you for that. And we pray by your spirit, you would draw those to yourself that are not yet believers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.